It's been a difficult week as a church family. Hard for us in a, in a number of ways as we mourn and as we grieve and powerful and moving to see our church family rally around Matthew and Lydia in the way that I've seen. And I just want to begin this morning by encouraging us pastorally. We need to continue to love Matthew and Lydia well in the days ahead um, as they face into this together. I want to pray for them now. I want us, though, even as we enter into Holy Week, to be reminded of our hope, to be reminded of the hope that we talked about yesterday at the memorial service in believing Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so now, God, we lift up precious Matthew and Lydia. We're so thankful for them. We're so thankful that they're a part of our family, Lord, that by your grace, you not only saved them, but put them to work in your kingdom and how they've ministered to us in so many ways at Gospel Life. And Lord, um, give us eyes and hearts to minister well to them in the days ahead. We pray that you, the God of all comfort and mercy, would be merciful to them this morning and every day. Lord, and stir our hearts and continue to place them on our minds that we might continue to, um, to actively be used by you in comforting them as well. So God, we just pray that you'd be with our family today. Be with them, strengthen them in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are aspects of Scripture that as we read it, we underappreciate. Okay. And oftentimes I think we underappreciate it to the point where comes this moment in which we need it, and yet we've underappreciated this aspect, and so now it's in some sense unavailable to us because it's not something that we've thought about or dwelt upon. For instance, we underappreciate the reality historically more recently that, that rather than a salvation that's primarily pictured in Scripture about believers escaping this earth to go to this place called heaven as sort of a final destination... Though heaven is real, the picture we actually see, the biblical storyline that we actually see ends with heaven coming down to renew and redeem and recreate the earth, this fallen world, bring redemption, to make everything sad come untrue. We underappreciate the pictures of Christ that we see in the Old Testament, something that theologians and Old Testament scholars refer to as typology. In which we see the shadow of this thing that's later on to come. We see the shadow of specifically what's to come in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we also, I think, because of those two things that get underappreciated, we also therefore underappreciate the waiting of God's people throughout salvation history because of those two realities. Waiting for that resurrection in the last day. Waiting for this one who is pictured to finally arrive. And even into today as we continue to wait for the consummation of this kingdom. 
that we continue to talk about and read about. We talk about it every Advent, right? So the church historically deals with this at Advent because at Advent we have this unique opportunity to focus on that expectation of this moment in which the promised one that we see throughout the pages of Scripture finally, finally arrives. So we, we focus on it a lot at Advent, but I would argue this morning that the messianic expectation during Holy Week is at its highest level, its fervor pitch, the highest level that we see in all of the scriptures, without question. Spending time in Genesis together up to this point should really help us to grasp this and to come back to it repeatedly. During Holy Week this year, we have this opportunity to consider together after going through these first you know, 36 chapters of Genesis, we have this opportunity to consider how those Genesis narratives that we've been through together actually equip us so well and strengthen us so well to look toward Holy Week. They point us forward into Holy Week. That's really our theme this year at Holy Week. It's how the Genesis narratives point forward to Palm Sunday. How the Genesis narratives point forward to Good Friday as we have our service this coming Friday. They point forward to Palm Sunday. And, and Easter Sunday. They really put on our front burner the sense of expectation that, that God's people really had from the very beginning of their history as a people. God declared the promise of a coming one at the same moment in which he renders a guilty verdict for his people. So he renders a guilty verdict. He, he uh, then sentence, gives a, a sentence of judgment and then immediately on this, the heels of the sentence of judgment, he brings a promise of hope. A promise of future salvation from this thing that now immediately uh, begins to plague them because of their sin. So we see this then repeated. Right? God declared it again. He declares this promise again to Abraham. Repeatedly. Saying he would be the father of many nations and that through his seed he would bless all the nations of the earth. Declares that again to Isaac, and then as we've seen more recently, repeatedly to Jacob. And so we see this picture of God declaring his promise to sinners in the midst of their great sin and in the midst of their great failure, right? He's not waiting for Jacob to get his act together and then declaring the promise. He's not saying the promise is going to rest on how well you do here, we'll see. If that were the case, the story of Genesis would have been finished a long time ago. A very short book. It's not the case. It's dependent on God's work and not their work. And so God's people wait, you know, because of that throughout Genesis with this eager messianic expectation. But we find that at the end of Genesis, spoiler alert, the, the, the promised seed hasn't come yet. They wait. They continue to wait. Like the end of Genesis will have another declaration that there's this royal seed coming from this royal line, this king who's coming, who will save, right? It doesn't happen yet. So they, God's people wait through the rest of the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, with this Easter, eager messianic expectation, because it was declared that, that one like Moses would come. One like Moses was yet to come who would be someone to lead God's people out in an exodus from the central problem of the human heart. But at the end of the Pentateuch, 
We find it written in Deuteronomy that no such prophet like Moses came to arise in Israel. We see echoes then of that throughout the prophets, especially in Isaiah, where more and more is said about this promised one who was uh, declared in Genesis 3 and throughout the Pentateuch, and now more is said about this royal son who will come for God's people. We see echoes of it, but at the end of the prophets, he hasn't yet come. We find 400 years of silence in which God's people long and wait and pray with great messianic expectation, in which, in which, during which, that 400 years, they believe that maybe some of their own leaders are this, long, are, are this long-awaited Messiah, Savior. But in the end, they come to, to realize that they're still deeply burdened with the reality of their sin and deserving this for judgment and wrath and separation and that they're looking for the Messiah in all the wrong places and for all the wrong reasons. Then we saw at Advent the silence breaks with the birth of a child, the one who is to come, and we see this, you know, it's counterintuitive, this angelic symphony declaring the arrival, not of, I mean, you'd expect the silence to break with this long-awaited anointed one, this Messiah, with an angelic symphony before uh, all of the people in, uh, where where the leaders, where the kings were seated, right? About a Messiah who's come to rescue them from this Roman occupation. But instead, this gentle and lowly Messiah is born. And he's born to the lowliest people imaginable. This angelic symphony comes to the lowliest people imaginable in the first century shepherds. Purposefully. But then over 30 years pass. And through this time, the fervor under Roman oppression continues to boil over in messianic expectation. Who is he? When will he come? This Jesus is born to those who are far off. Born to save us from the central problem of the human heart. And now he finally comes on the scene. He has authority in his teaching. He has authority over nature. He has authority over the spiritual realm. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He declares the good news of his arrival. That his arrival is good news and for good reason. That he's come to save his people. And the people, after waiting from the very beginning, waiting, when I say waiting from the very beginning, I mean, you know I mean it. Waiting since Genesis 3, you guys. The first three chapters in all the Bible. So the people who've been waiting from the very beginning now come out to Jerusalem to see if this Jesus is the one who finally saves them. And this this is the expectation that brings us, as we'll see in our text, to Palm Sunday. The Holy Week. It serves us to actually help understand the central storyline in the entire Bible. Rightly grasping what happens on Palm Sunday is rightly grasping the center of the Christian faith. Having a clearer view of what the people waiting for wanted and yet what Jesus was coming to actually provide for his people will help us to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, And why this is so central and significant for us.
And we'll see this in four sections of the narrative this morning. Okay, we'll move kind of quickly through them. So as the narrative begins, first we see, first section is, the stage is set in verse 12. This is the context. So what happens on on Palm Sunday? Well, we see the, the stage being set right before our eyes in this verse. Set your eyes there with me. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Okay, so again, here in John 12, it's it's the Sunday of Passion Week. This is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday prior to Easter morning. The large crowd that John refers to here is made up of two groups. And we'll actually see that more clearly in verses 17 and 18 along with chapter 12. But here we see both pilgrims from the Galilean road on their way to Jerusalem for Passover are following with and behind Jesus. Some of whom have been witnesses of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. As well as Jews who are already in Jerusalem who've heard about this and have heard about Jesus' ministry and they've come out. Now to see this, we see the Pharisees are there too, right? So people have heard that he's on his way in and they come out to to see him. And these were no small crowds, you guys. You have to understand, let's get something of a context for how big of a deal Passover was. And what it must have meant for people in the first century to have heard about these things and to all be coming out to see, right? Messianic fervor was at such a high pitch that Pilate's worried about losing his job. He's worried about having someone from the Roman council step in and remove him of his seat of power because he's about to lose control in Jerusalem. I mean, this is a big deal. And and when we think about how many people are in Jerusalem during this time, the Jewish historian Josephus describes a Passover happening, you know, just prior to the Jewish wars of AD 66, in which 2,700,000 people come to Jerusalem to take part, not including the Gentiles um, and foreigners who are already in the city. And even if you say, well, Josephus as a historian sometimes exaggerates, there's really no debate at all that the crowds here are immense. And that as the crowds are growing in their immensity, they're also growing in their expectation that God's going to finally, that, that, that this Messiah, this promised one's finally going to break in at some point and rescue them, right? So all this continues to grow. This is a major public spectacle unfolding. What's happening? Like, wh- what is it that they believe is happening that's so significant that it draws both a crowd from behind on the road as well as a crowd up ahead coming from Jerusalem, coming from and out of Jerusalem to see him enter? Well, Luke's gospel, I think, best puts this event into shorthand when it says that earlier on from this event, Jesus, Luke says, sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, earlier on in his ministry, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He purposefully resolves. Jesus, knowing what's what's awaiting him in this city, intentionally, lovingly, with, with, with great strength and resolve, sets his face to go to to Jerusalem. And it's here in John 12 that we see he finally arrives in order to accomplish the purpose that he set out to accomplish. And as he arrives, the, the messianic fervor is so great that a large crowd from behind and out ahead of him 
come out to greet him. The stage is set. Okay? The stage is set. So it's here that we see the number two, second section of the narrative, the proclamation of the people. The proclamation of the people. As they cry out in verse 13, set your eyes there with me. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The people begin in this response, in this proclamation, they begin by taking branches out of palm trees. Why palm branches? Why is that what they wave? Well, there really wasn't any difficulty finding them. You know, date palm branches in Jerusalem grew everywhere in the first century A.D. You still find them growing there today. Right. So on the one hand, there's an ease of use as something to wave and celebrate, but that's not even close to the primary purpose for them waving these branches in John chapter 12. Because from within first century Judaism, we actually find that palm branches already have had for about 200 years up to this point a major significance uh, as a national symbol, really a nationalistic symbol. So when Simon the Maccabee, about... 130 years before Jesus was born, 140 years before he was born, when Simon the Maccabee drove out the Syrian forces from Jerusalem, they honored him with the waving of palm branches. Palms were actually appearing on the coins that were used by the insurgents during the Jewish wars against Rome. It was a symbol of national identity, but it was also greatly affiliated with a desire for a liberator from Roman oppression and persecution. This was the hope of the people, right? That these are my present circumstances. In the midst of my present circumstances, I am being unjustly uh, oppressed. And so a savior is primarily coming to end this unjust oppression. It's the primary reason that a savior would come, right? To save me out of my circumstances. And so when they cry out Hosanna, which literally means give salvation now, Save us now. Give salvation now. The people are shouting better than they understand. They're speaking better than they realize. Because as we'll see, you know, it was salvation from the very beginning of every gospel account. It was salvation that Jesus uniquely came to give. But it wasn't salvation from the earthly oppression of Roman tyranny. And Roman tyranny was horrible. It was a yoke of oppression that was evil, that bore such a burden on the people of Israel that the Romans could really seek to do fit whatever they wanted. It was horrible, and yet the Messiah comes for a different, deeper kind of tyranny. A tyranny and oppression that actually causes every tyranny and oppression. It's the root cause of All of it. He doesn't come to deal with the symptom, and yet it's that symptom that is the messianic expectation present in the proclamation of the people. That's what they want. They have have an an agenda in this that this is bad, and the Messiah surely will come and end us and end this and bring us into a new age. Right. Here we see the contrast, though, between what the people are expecting and what Jesus proclaims, right? Because here we have, thirdly, the reason for the rescue, right? So The stage is set, proclamation of the people, the reason for the rescue in verses 14 through 16. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, 
Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Okay, so Jesus sits on a donkey, rides into Jerusalem. And if you're wondering some of the details about how that all came about, we actually find that in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this is one of the events in the scriptures that actually occurs in all, across all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. All right. So you can read more of the details there. But interestingly enough, once again, we see the authors of these gospel accounts referencing a couple of different verses in attempting to explain to us the events that we're reading about in the Old Testament. Right? So they reference a couple of different Old Testament texts to explain this, this event. Here in verse 15, we see something of a combination of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and Zechariah 9. If you're taking notes, write those down. I'd encourage you this week to read both of them. Maybe today on Palm Sunday. Read Isaiah 40. Zechariah 9. Because what we find here would be counterintuitive to the people living under Roman oppression. And desiring you know, an end of, of their current circumstances. And longing primarily for salvation from those circumstances. Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem on a horse of war. Had he done that in this kind of context, he would have had the people behind him and, and uh, in line with that idea of, of why he would come to save in, in a moment's notice. He doesn't come, though, on a horse of war, but he comes on a beast of burden. Why? He doesn't present himself as a worldly general, but as a needed savior, right? The savior that that we need. Not necessarily the Savior that we think we want, but the Savior that we need. D.A. Carson makes three observations from Zechariah 9 in this reference. So he says, listen, the fact that John uses Zechariah 9 as his lens through which he understands the purpose of Jesus' coming should tell us an awful lot about uh, Jesus' reason for, for, for the rescue and what the people's expectation was, right? And he makes three observations about Zechariah 9. First of all, he says, okay, people are expecting a, a general on a war horse. Instead, they find this gentle king of Zechariah 9. And the, gentle, the coming of the gentle king, first of all, is associated with the cessation of war, the cessation of violence. And listen, this text was understood by John as defining the work of Jesus in such a way that nobody could simply reduce him to some enthusiastic zealot or arduous liberation theologian. It's not who Jesus was. He doesn't fly. You have to rewrite the teachings of Jesus. You have to rewrite the Old Testament prophecies that point forward to him in order to find that kind of theology present in the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. The cessation of war. Secondly, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the proclamation of peace to the nations. Extending his reign to all of the nations. To all the ends of the earth. Here we're reminded, right, of God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in Genesis. All of the nations of the earth shall be blessed through this one who is to come. This isn't about taking down a liberating nation who are oppressing, but rather drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation by grace into a new and different kind of kingdom through faith 
And third then, so how, you know, how is this peace going to be made known to the nations? How are they going to be drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Well, third, the coming of the gentle king is associated not with the blood of their enemies, but with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners, which are themes that we already see in Passover, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, so that God's people might be saved from death, what actually plagues them, you know. So the people who wave these branches and speak better than they realize about salvation, they want this military king to liberate them from an oppressor, but Jesus comes as a gentle king who comes to liberate them from something far more threatening than their current day oppressors. Far more insidious, far more deep, central problem. They desire a worldly king to topple a nation of people, but Jesus comes as a gentle king who comes to proclaim his peace to all nations in strength, setting his face to Jerusalem in strength, right? What kind of peace? How will he declare peace? Peace with God through his blood shed on their behalf. Peace with God by bearing our penalty that we deserved on our behalf. Dying in our place and rising to new life. Defeating sin. Defeating the thing that causes, defeating the tyranny that causes every tyranny. This is the reason he came to Jerusalem. This is the reason he set his face there. The text tells us that the disciples don't understand the significance of all these things until later on. After Jesus had been risen and glorified. Because if someone didn't understand these things on the other side of the cross, you couldn't call them a Christian. If someone on the other side of the cross still said, yeah, that Jesus came to, to as primarily as a liberator from my circumstances. In the New Testament text, you couldn't call them a Christian. As Don Carson concludes, he says, not only is the failure of the disciples to comprehend the nature of Jesus' kingship and the, and the inevitability of the cross universally attested across the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say that the disciples fail in this way. They fail to see uh, this, the universality of the cross for all nations. That failure was also something that could not be misunderstood after Jesus' death and glorification. The centrality of the cross, right? That by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, you can be saved. That's something that you just couldn't understand, couldn't fail to understand. Christians could scarcely thought, Carson writes, Christians could scarcely thought to be Christians without understanding these fundamentals. And Jews of any sort, of intimate dialogue with Christians could also understand what Christians meant in the first century. They might not believe their interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures, but there could not easily be a profound misunderstanding of what was meant by these things. For such readers, this passage comes not to relieve misunderstanding, there was no misunderstanding, but to better ground the fledgling understanding and explain the evolution of thinking in the first century Christians by basing their change of perspective, the disciples' change of perspective from before and after on the basis of Jesus and the glorification of Jesus. A Christian, in other words, is one who understands the reason for the rescue. A Christian is one who understands that God did not come to, change, to save us from our circumstances as Jacob hoped God would do. In Genesis 35, 
but rather he's a God who came to save us from ourselves. Right? A Christian is one who understands God came to save me from me. That what, it's G.K. Chesterton writing that two-word essay for the Times in London, you know, reaching out to a bunch of people asking what's wrong with the world, and he gives us the two-word answer. I am, dear sirs, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. This is, this is why Jesus came to save. Christians are those who realize that we're the ones in need of saving. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The sin that plagues us. If we primarily seek a liberator from circumstances rather than a savior from sin, we not only misunderstand the gospel, but according to Jesus, throughout the gospels, and according to John 12, we miss the entire thing because we still end up bearing the primary weight of the problem, separated from God, declaring ourselves as the enemy, and setting our face against him. And we lose the thing that we desire to see justice brought, right? Because we're just compiling sin upon sin upon sin if we don't deal with the root issue of sin. And yet while we set our face against him, he set his face toward Jerusalem. While we set our face against God, he set his face toward Jerusalem. While we set our face against him as enemies, he resolved to save. You know, Jesus doesn't say in John 12, you know, like, really? Even after reading just like one book of the Old Testament... Even just 35 chapters of one book in the Old Testament so far. Really, you don't, you don't know what you need to be saved from? You don't understand or grasp the problem of sin? I mean, this is kind of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in, which he, in, in, in chapter 3 of John, earlier on, in which he says, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He, but, but he doesn't say, really? You know, I'm turning this donkey around. This is not worth it. No, Jesus is so merciful. Knowing deeply of the suffering that he knew he would have to endure on the cross, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Thinking of his people and how they were far from him because of sin, even when they didn't understand, and even while he's doing it, declaring that they don't need him in the way that he's come, crying out for the wrong things, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. In Luke's account, he's in tears. Jesus is so merciful to us, you guys. And this is where we finally see the response of the religious leaders. Verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, so here, actually two crowds, again, present in the text. Some are those who witnessed the raising of Lazarus, pilgrims from Galilee, from behind. Some came out of Jerusalem ahead because they heard about this miracle, along with the Pharisees. And in the midst of this, of seeing this vast crowd and seeing this response to Jesus, already having heard quite a bit about him and resolving to do something about it, the Pharisees respond with great irony. They say essentially that this entry from Jesus, this triumphal entry, is watching this happen is getting them nowhere because Jesus just continu- 
Leaving this alone, Jesus just continues to go from strength to strength with the people. And so the Pharisees ponder their own power and authority that they've given to themselves, right? That they've decided that they're the arbiters of. And they see Jesus as as threatening that power. And they tell us why they're so concerned. They say, look, the world has gone after him. And this is just stunning irony in the last pages of, of John. Because when they tell us that the world has gone after him, they mean everyone. Everyone. Those on the Galilean road, those who are pilgrims, those who are coming from afar, and those who are coming out of Jerusalem. But the way that John uses the word world throughout the gospel is a signal uh, to all of those who by sin are separated from God. This idea of cosmos, world, in John's gospel is essentially this sinful world order that set itself against God as an enemy, those who are lost in rebellion against a good and holy God. And on the one hand, you know, the statement from the Pharisees can't be true. The world has, has gone after Jesus. The world has gone after him. They're following him. On the one hand, what they say can't be true for a couple of different reasons. Partly because they also, the Pharisees also misunderstand the Messiah and why he came, the nature of the Messiah. They also think the Messiah is coming primarily as a liberator who will then, you know, strengthen and solidify their positions of power as he does so. Everyone has an agenda here. But the reason Jesus needs to come as a savior is precisely because this world that is lost in rebellion against God actually can't go after him. What the, what the first you say can't be true. We can't pursue him. We can't follow him. This is why the Apostle Paul will later quote from two different psalms in Romans 3 saying, listen, if you think you can go after Jesus, you've misdiagnosed the problem. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not one. It's a leveling of the playing field. No one's better than anyone else. We've all sinned. We're all far off from God. We've all been estranged and none of us can pursue. And yet at the same time there is something true about what the Pharisees unknowingly utter. Because the purpose of Jesus' mission was actually to save the world. To go after the world. You know, John told us already in chapter 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in the power of the resurrection might be saved. Right? And. Everything throughout this triumphal entry declares the triumph not of an earthly liberator from circumstances, but as a sacrificial savior. One who lays himself down, taking penalty that we deserve, that we might have life in him. One who would finally do for their people what they could never do for themselves. Living the life that we should have lived but failed to dying the death that we deserve in our place and as our substitute. Even when we didn't realize that this is our primary need, and even when we said that this isn't the kind of Savior that we want, this is Jesus going to the cross. Jesus mercifully moves toward us because we could never move toward him. He mercifully sets his face to Jerusalem even when we didn't know him or seek to know him. Here Jesus rides into Jerusalem knowing full well what awaits him. 
His body broken for us, his blood spilled, that we might be his, that we might know him and be reconciled back to God. That we might then declare this good news to the nations, the news that actually deals with the primary problem of your heart and not just the circumstances that you find yourself in. So this morning, I think on Palm Sunday, we need to reflect on Jesus. Entering Holy Week, we need to reflect on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to reflect on the salvation offered in Christ. We need to reflect on the gospel. And we need to ask ourselves, you know, because it's so easy to sneak my own agenda into the mission of Jesus. Say that the reason for his coming is to save me from something that I want rather than something that I need. So this morning, let's reflect on our sin. Jesus came to save us from our sin. As we approach the table, let's reflect on our sin. Let's spend some time asking for forgiveness, repenting of our sin, confessing our sin before the Father, and then we'll take the elements here in just a couple of moments.